because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Welcome to Cows in the Field. This is a show where we discuss philosophical themes in popular films. My name is Justin. I'm Laura. And today we go back to our childhood, when our parents locked us at home and told us that cats were deadly creatures that killed our brother who was locked up across the way because he disobeyed them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right, folks. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the film that put Yorgos Lanthimos on the map. It's 2009's Dogtooth. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars And let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars And we're delighted to be joined by the host of Exiting Through the 2010s, which is a podcast devoted to the films of, you guessed it, the 2010s. It's the always delightful Jack Draper. Welcome, Jack. Hello. Thank you for yeah having this. is. This is a great podcast. Oh, was, well, yeah. we're always glad to have you and you've had us on and it was a long time <laughs> coming to to have you on. And, you know, I gave you free reign, but I wanted some parameters when I gave you some films to choose from. I said, Jack, pick a film, but it has to be from 2009. So I wanted it to be before your podcast, you know, starts, right? 2010 to 2019. So what's a movie that just barely missed the cut for you, but that you wish you could have covered? And you came to us with Dogtooth. So I want to start with the question, you know, it's open-ended, but why Dogtooth? When did you first see it? You know, what was your first reaction? How does this movie feel for you? How does it resonate with you? Yeah, I think that Yorgos was a a really formative filmmaker for, for me getting into cinema and seeing what it can make me feel um i saw the lobster at 16 when it was making its festival run or when it was being released on vod i didn't know what it was i just remember hearing good things about it because in 2016 that was when i first started to follow festivals i i was just like the lobster is like (laughs) amazing <laughs> i loved uh, like what romance and and the idea of uh, uh finding a lifetime partner um yeah i remember just like really clicking with the with the comedy in that one and then i stumbled onto dogtooth after it was playing on hbo mm. when i was i think when i was sick um and because it was like one of those things that i could have like stumbled onto just any movie but it happened to be this one it was like the surprise of it all it was like, mm-hmm. whoa, like I didn't know, like, and I didn't even connect the dots at first. I see. So you didn't know that it was the same director as yeah, this I didn't, movie I didn't that know you loved. Mm. Um, and I think this was like t- the next year, uh, pretty close to the lobsters when I saw the lobster. Soon after that, that's when I saw a movie in theaters with some friends called The Killing of a Secret Deer. And mm-hmm. then that's when I started to put the pieces together that this was all the same person that made me feel this kind of provoked to, to feel like a little disturbed. And, and the way that he made me feel while also laughing through it mm-hmm. was like very specific. And I had never felt that way. Even someone that 
he's been compared to a lot of the time Stanley Kubrick, like not even Kubrick made me feel like that. Um, especially because like Lanthimos, I actually actively sought out and he was brought to me with a modern feel instead of Kubrick that felt right. like, I guess in my, in my eyes, like when I saw those films first for the first time, like Kubrick felt ancient. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I mean, Dogtooth kind of exists like barely in the 2000s, right? Because uh, for our pod covering the 2010s, like we've done Killing the Sacred Deer and The Favorite, and those firmly place him among the most interesting filmmakers. And they have they were successful in their festivals when they debuted. Um, people really like those two. Yeah. This one, I think it's firmly a breakout that you see that one uncertain regard, I believe, in like, compete for the palm and in 2009 and then it's initial release in 2010 so like this one i feel like barely hangs on to its uh previous decade in, in kind of a fun way yeah and um i i feel as though that this is like something that i understood when i saw it like six or seven years ago but then like it's something that you just pick up on more things as as it's in your life longer yeah I mean, what a what an experience that must have been as a young sort of burgeoning cinephile to see a movie that starts. I mean, I was rewatching the beginning actually right before this, and and it really does sort of start in media res because it it starts with them getting a tape of the new words that mm-hmm. they're learning, and at this point you're you're immediately thinking this is very strange. Um, mm. because the words are, let me, let me just re- rehash them. I wrote them down. So the words are sea, the, the, you know, the ocean, mm-hmm. uh, which means according to the mother, a leather armchair with wooden arms. And then she uses it in a sentence, like, wouldn't it be nice to, instead of standing Don't stand all day, on your feet, yeah. have her, have a nice rest on the sea. <laughs> yeah. Motorway, a very strong wind excursion, a very resistant material for floors. And carbine, a beautiful white bird. I feel like di- immediately you're just you don't know what the hell is going on. I think, see, I think I remember like thinking it was like code words or something like they were going to be like spies, spies or like they were in a cult or something. That's what I immediately thought. But I was yeah, yeah confused from John. Yeah, immediately your 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 brain is moving because you're trying to figure out where are we, you know, what's happening, who are these people, why are they get receiving this message on a videotape on a sorry on an audio cassette tape. And what does it mean? I mean, it's 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 really effective filmmaking. So compelling. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't remember when we first saw it. Did we see it together for the first time? I can't uh-huh. remember. Okay, yeah. Okay, so. But I don't also, I have no memory of whether I had known who Lanthimos was prior to seeing Dogtooth. I, I would, I, I think not. And I actually think, Jack, like you, I think I saw The Lobster first, I think. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, because I, I think like The Lobster, that was the English language debut that, was an easier sell for people. Yeah. Sort of like how Stoker is an easier sell for the English language debut of Parchan Wook. And I just I think I at that age too, like I, I wanted things that that would be a challenge to me, but also not dismissing things that aren't as challenging. It was just more like I wanted to consume everything. Yeah. Uh I, I mean of of course I still do. It's a little weird to talk about it so much now because on exiting I do, but Filmstruck, if Filmstruck was sort of the pre-Criterion channel when that Mm -hmm. shut down. It sort of grew into Criterion channel. Um, And Criterion channel sort of like 
led me to seeing Dogtooth again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because then I was like, what is like I was like kind of I was fascinated. And and then like I think it was Yorgos that talked about like like in vendors in an interview and that led me to like Paris, cool. Texas. Oh, yeah. Cool. Like, like it was like, yeah, like I I would always consume like the featurettes on Filmstruck. Yeah. Like Barry Jenkins uh talked about Claire Denis and then that led me to that. And mm -hmm. uh it was I don't know, it was a it was a very formative streamer. Yeah. But it was a streamer that existed for like like a year. Like How long? Four, yeah, three years. Like three years. Like yeah. Year. yeah, I feel like yeah. we had it for only like a year. It and feels then, like a dream. <laughs> and yeah, you know that's the thing about streamers like Filmstruck and Criterion, where they they take an active curational role in helping direct people to really interesting things. Because I think for a lot of people getting into films that are outside of the mainstream canon, you know, and by canon I just mean like whatever is in theaters. It's mm -hmm. like it can feel overwhelming because so there's overwhelming, so yeah. many things and you're like oh you know i think criterion channel is almost a little bit too overwhelming there's so many things and you're almost not sure where to start but one of the great things is to look at these you know the closets and also the things like the barry jenkins talking about claire denis just these little interviews where they talk about their influences or it's, i think some of them are they maybe still do them as interviews where they they yeah. list their 10 favorite movies in the Criterion channel. It's just really mm -hmm. wonderful ways to get yeah. into it. Yeah. It's um, sort yeah, of like spider web your way back into film history, yeah. starting with the nodes of like the people who like. Who you it, like. Who you love. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, um, who you resonate Bill with. Bill Hader most. introduced me to Blood Simple. You know, it can oh, be something nice. <laughs> as yeah. easy as that, where it's not even, you know, Blood Simple is, uh, I mean, of course, it's like not as uh, uh, challenging as as like dog tooth like it it can be varying degrees of of what they'll recommend you but like you know it's also formative um totally and blood simple is such a great movie. i mean obviously Eight amazing movie. Yeah. Like yeah. so yeah. condensed all the cohen dna just right there you guys want to watch go go watch blood simple like I <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean dog tooth is great but blood simple uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay so dog tooth let's think a little bit mm. about you know the film and some of the maybe some of the themes that resonated with you jack i mean you know, we were talking before that the first time we watched this movie, Laura and I, we were only children in the sense that we were our parents' children, but we were not yet parents. Yes. And now we watch the movie and we're parents and it feels a little bit different. I mean, it's it's a little bit like sort of seeing the world from a completely different perspective. And in this film, you see the film from a completely different perspective. I mean, the bad guy yeah. is still the bad guy. The, the, the parents are still the bad people. But, but are they bad, though? Well, but now we sort of see ourselves in them more. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's like, I know sometimes, like, my my dad once talked about how, like, the first time he saw The Graduate, he was Dustin Hoffman's age. And then the next time he saw The Graduate, he was the age of the parents right. with the mm. adult child. And that, you know, that happens every, you know, as you come back to movies, maybe you uh, are in the different life stage. But this one is explicitly about parenting. Yeah. And we are now in this moment where we are like trying to form our child like clay, maybe. And there's like so much that they do where I'm like, oh, shit. Yep. No, we have a sticker chart. You know, like he's like, how many stickers do you have? How many stickers yeah. do you have? Our son will ask for ice cream. And I'm like, do you have nine stickers on your sticker chart? Like, <laughs> like, oh man, like we are doing this shit. And like, how far is it from being like, okay, I'm going to have twins, but I might not have twins if you're good. Oh, yeah. How is that we, any different than Santa Claus? We threaten Santa Claus. him with arbitrary punishments <laughs> all the time because 
I mean, it's yeah. obviously yeah. bad to do that to an adult human being. But, but should we be doing it to three-year-olds? Well, but there's a reason we do do it to younger people, and that's because their reasoning capabilities are not fully formed. Uh-huh. But it is... It's a massive rationalization on it, our part. It is a... Um, the absurdity of what we're doing is reflected in the film when it's mm. being done to adults. And yes. that is, I think, you know... I think it's intended comedically, ultimately. I don't... Yeah. I mean, there's a reading of this film, and maybe we should talk about it, which is that it is like comparing parenthood to fascist state. We could talk about that. I actually think, though, we should also keep in mind that there's another reading of this film, which is just a kind of deploy... Like a farcical deployment or send-up of what it's like to be a parent, mm -hmm. which is you're doing a bunch of ridiculous things in the name of your you know holding on to your children's innocence and to what end they're ultimately going to escape they're gonna see and rocky and yeah. it's like that's that yeah and so <laughs> you sit down and you go well yeah we had a held off longer maybe that's a victory but is there really any victory and if you think about it from the perspective of the parents in this movie what are they what's their end game to like the kids right. never leave or what is, what, how does this work? Eventually, the ki the parents are going to grow old, and the kids are going to need to take care of them and leave the house. Like, there's no, there's no obvious end game, and that. Well, is... the youngest daughter is good at medicine, so they're fine. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> they enough. are. They've planned for every kid. I put it to you, Jack. What do you think? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 here. Um, but I, you know, we don't know the end game. That's so crucial that it would be common, and I think this would become inherently more political if we did know the father especially his motivation but the fact that it keeps it hidden it's just for more us to then insert our own mm. explanations into the satire um because yeah uh, it's a very thin line between like parenting and oppression yes that's uh -huh. a great way to put it yeah um that's i think that's where yorgos sees it but um, I don't, I don't know if he's, I, I think he sees it as something absurd. You're right. Uh, because especially at, I mean, the age that you guys are at too, where, you know, you can have someone who wants to be Luke Skywalker for Halloween without seeing Star Wars. But I guess <laughs> it's like influences just seep into the minds of someone that's very young. Yeah. And I think the sense of humor of the film has always really stuck with me. The fact that you have these older actors act like children. It's a little bit of uh, Pen15, the, the Hulu TV show. Mm -hmm. uh, that shows, it just gets me. Like, like <laughs> that idea is just, it's very good. It's very good. Um, they, yeah, like the, your disconnect of, of your mind and, and body of like actually having an adult play children is very funny. Uh, <laughs> it's also like a little bit of big mouth, I, I think, mm -hmm. uh, where it's just that sense of humor. Um, shades of it. There's something really disturbing about it because then they engage in very explicit sexual acts, right? right. And it's something very odd having like this. Um, what's his name? The the well the the son. The, I, he, there's the, no name. The son, yeah. Uh, the son, effective like this. The scene when they he middle engages, child. The middle yeah. child, right? <laughs> when he engages in with incest with his older sister. And he's like directing her to like how to jerk him off and stuff. Like, yeah. cause this is how he has learned, but he only knows this as like a step by step process that was presumably taught to him by his father explicitly mm -hmm. and, or whatever, or maybe taught to him by Christina, the person who's come in to be having sex with him previously. And 
but yeah. it's like it's that is how a young child they their mind works like you you mm-hmm. teach them to do something their instructions and then this is the way it yeah. will always be done there's yeah. no other way to do it it has to be exactly this way they don't understand that this is you know sex is not it's not cooking right it's like it's a playful it's activity very, <laughs> it's very interesting that you then see christina take advantage of the girls mm-hmm. that it's not just the parents whose morality isn't in the best interest of the kids that anyone can look at this situation and feel as though it's their it's it's in their then selfish interest to manipulate them yeah mm. although i though uh, uh, to that point actually um the eldest is quite savvy right about mm. so she doesn't realize she's being manipulated but she does realize when she's gotten a bad deal mm-hmm. and she bargains right for she bargains for some more connection to the outside world and um and you know interestingly apparently i i guess this is true it seems plausible actually but prostitution is the oldest form of it's like the oldest profession. Yeah, I mean that's an and adage. I didn't know if that's that was the old like, adage. Okay, I was gonna, is that and a fact? Just no, I don't know. But but that is like the the primary medium of exchange in this yeah. film, right? Is is sex, and um, the eldest uses sex to ultimately buy her way in a way out of the uh, out of her condition, which I think is interesting. I mean, certainly too. I think for women, sex has been a way. Is you know has been one tool for liberation one tool for gaining power you know since the beginning of time yeah yeah and then we see what happens to children if they're never allowed to form an identity or achieve that liberation right uh which which i think is is interesting like that's sort of like (laughs) that's what happens if um parenting is completely misdirected i i i don't know i i guess i still think that like, of course, there's like movies like this. People always point to like Louis Benoel as like an influence, like with mm-hmm. the social satire, um, specifically of the country that they're uh, depicting and they're from. Um, I, I guess now and and from when I first saw it, I always thought it was it was like very, very specific. And I think it's because it's it's like that idea that a director has like a culmination um but it's not necessarily like a masterpiece uh the material and like where they're at in their careers and what they're trying to focus on with themes that will keep on coming up i think yorgos is a, like a really good spot in it um i don't know if that makes sense it's it's like this idea where everything is just falling to the right place there's not really a, a word for that i guess like you made this movie before that's called Canetta, mm. which is like i i saw with this as you guys saw Alps uh Canada is like not very good it's rather boring and I think it's it's like this movie is where he found to insert the satire sense of humor and directing actors to all like mesh together very mm. well and I recognize that um and then he just improves upon it with the English language movies yeah let's actually talk about the 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 directing actors bit because one of the things you mentioned earlier off mic was was just how Yorgos is an underrated director of actors. And I think that is exactly right. And I think part one of the ways we can see this is how specific the tone of his movies, each of his movies is, 
And part of that tone is carried by the flat affect of the line delivery. But it's one of these things where I actually don't know how you communicate that to an actor. So they understand coming into your project, we're all going to deliver our lines almost with no affect. And in each in our own, there's not that we're all going to have the same personality. Even within that instruction, everyone has different personalities and different, you know, their characterizations come, come, come across. But somehow they maintain this kind of affectless approach, which is carried throughout, I think, all of his films. And I, I don't, there's something like cool and also unusual and also incredibly difficult to describe about that. And mm-hmm. that's why I think it's, it's quite masterful how he's able to get these people, you know, to get on that wavelength. And I think that is yeah. a real achievement. If there's something that I think comes close to Nanthamos, it's David Cronenberg. Uh, and I think once you look at those two side by side, of course, like they're both not American and maybe that they just have, a different touch than hmm. American filmmakers may, since that's maybe their only commonality. Um, and it's it's that idea that also Cronenberg, I think, is an underrated actor's director as well. Even even though like he's thought of as other as as uh, prioritizing other things uh, ahead of that. Yeah, like a craftsman or something, right? Mm-hmm. Right, um, right. Yeah, he, a horror it, guy. I mean, the yeah. other the other name that I think we haven't mentioned yet, but I think is kind of swirling around in this pool for me is is Lynch and in particular the the David Lynch you know that parts of David Lynch that I feel are the most surreal because of the performances so I'm thinking in particular like the first 20 minutes of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me right mm-hmm. where the where the the acting is very weird and unusual yeah. in that and it's sort of unclear what kind of movie you're watching and then and it's also you're you're expecting to see all your old favorites again and they're <laughs> denied you for the first you know third of the movie or whatever it is and yeah anyway so lynch i guess is another guy yes um, yes yes also say- someone who may not be thought of at first of yeah as an actor's director right oh but he totally is yeah yeah he's got like a whole crew um yeah, I was thinking of Jared Hess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jared Hess, I mean, Wes Anderson, tonal, tonal. Yeah, I just mean, yeah. like, I was thinking about, like, weirdly, like, there's, I kind of had ne- thought about Napoleon Dynamite a few times during this movie. I think it's mm-hmm. also just the, like, the palette, mm-hmm. the kind of grayed out palette of uh, that, you know, I always, I was commenting to Justin because this one and Alps both have sort of, like, a muted color palette and i was thinking like when i think of greece i think of like vacation brochures and that's not like what he's showing you here <laughs> um yeah. and um, yeah. and they've got yeah. a pool but it's not like you know a cerulean blue pool everything is just like a little bit kind of washed out in tone yeah, yeah they and live they in the like middle of nowhere they live in the middle of, they all wear white and gray yeah you know um yeah you know yeah. and similarly napoleon dynamite has a little bit of like that muted almost like it's like it sort of looks like the 80s it sort of looks like now and people have a similarly flat affect um but that's For another sure. movie where yeah. it just came out of nowhere in terms of tone and it it like i think you know it really locked it was made for five dollars i think yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. but um, it was like a sensation you're probably too young to remember this yeah, but I, like everybody had to have the vote for pedro shirt like that was like really cool and i was too old for that okay justin's wearing one right now <laughs> yeah <that's true. laughs> it was i was like right got the in that wig on and everything that like yeah like uh the hot topic store had all the vote for pedro shirts and then and then like branded napoleon dynamite chapstick okay <laughs> 
I think that's a I, I totally agree. I think that's a very 2000s look that these have, but it doesn't feel like a look that you can replicate. Like you can't, I mean, of course, we're only so far ahead of the of that decade. I, I, it's sort of this idea that I, I think is really interesting when we cover films in the earlier half of the, of the 2010s, like your 2010, 2011, 2012, that have a very specific look that films are yet, are still filming on a digital camera that, isn't used anymore mm. uh, in the later half of the decade. I I don't know what this means. <laughs> it's just something that's cool that that you can just be like, it's a very specific look in time that you can point to as you can for Napoleon Diamond and Dogtooth. Yeah. Of course, like one's an American production, one's a Greek production. Like, of course, like maybe there's something there that's also different. Budgets are different. Um, but no, I I think that's that's an interesting comparison. I I think that the the production design of Dogtooth is like, it looks like an Airbnb that was sold too well to you. <laughs> and you get there and you're like, there's no key under the rug. And yeah, um, but I, this also, I thought this uh, when I went back to it, that it, it's kind of like a pandemic movie. Yeah. Cause there's like, can't leave the house, less man. Than, less than 10 characters. Uh, not that many locations. That um, also hit for me as yeah. a parent in the pandemic because we've been on the like, you know, deep end of cautious. But like, yeah, because, you know, our kid like didn't really go into stores and didn't see other kids for like a long period of time. So he kind of was like in yeah. a dog tooth world where like, you know, whatever we showed him was his whole world. So he got really into tenant for a minute there. The kid doesn't know <laughs> a life before the pandemic, right? That's no, right. he doesn't. Yeah, like, right. and when no. he figured out what Amazon was, like, honestly, I wish I had dog tooth that out of his mind. Cause like now I'm like, sorry, hon, we don't have that. And he's like, is it on Amazon, mama? And I'm like, dang it. He knows about Amazon. I should have yeah. been like, nope, there's nothing, there's nothing. Like, we, 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 we ha I have to be like, you have to send your dad out in the car and then yeah. he has well, to ward off cats so to get you that. I'll give you an example. We're, a lot of these are, a lot of what we're going to talk about now is going to be our about? dog tooth type mm. things we do with our kids. So, Laura failed with Amazon, but Justin did not fail with it when it comes to ice cream. So, Jack, let me tell you what we did with our with ice cream. So we we would go out to get ice cream at various ice cream places. And I did not want as to a treat as a treat, like once in a while. So I did not yeah. want to tell our son that there's ice cream in the house, which that you for can, like, sure buy for a grocery is store. in ice cream. We in have the house. ice cream in our like, house right five now. Five feet Do from not him tell our at child. any moment, there is ice cream, but he does not know this. And one day I was, he was like, we get ice cream. And it was like, we did not have time to go get ice cream. Bedtime was, <laughs> was looming. So, but he was refusing to give it up. So what I said was, okay, I will use my magical sorcery <laughs> to create some ice cream for you. But I can only do this as a one-time thing. And he was like, okay, okay. So then what I did is I took a book I basically scooped out the ice cream. I got it all ready and I hid it under like behind my back or something. And then I took out the book and I put it down. The ice cream's underneath it. And I said the incantation and I revealed it. And, and you know, he was, he basically now thinks I can create ice cream at will. Yeah. He, today he was like, can daddy magic fingers the ice cream? And I was like, I don't know <laughs> if daddy's can, feeling magic. How can I get the powers 
to create ice cream? Will the powers well, of ice cream in a very dog toothy way? Interestingly, he has not right. actually asked whether he, he just <laughs> he just uh, uh, he has accepted that only Daddy can make the ice cream. Right. But he doesn't totally get that he doesn't yet get that he could like bargain with me. He he sort of thinks that like I can only do this as like an incredible act of willpower that I can only do once in a while. He's like accepted that. So it's good because that's where we want it to be. We do not yeah. want yeah. him bargaining for this. And in a very dog tooth way too, this is how three-year-old minds work. The way it was done the first time, it must be done exactly, exactly the same. like that. So we have these little, you can be a philosopher too books. Yes. So it, he's like, it, he's, it has to be the philosophy book that is the cover for the magic ice cream. Like it couldn't be another book, you know, yeah. like that's a part of the right. spell basically. Um, yeah. We're terrible parents. No, but I, I think <laughs> I don't, I mean, there's a reason. But it's again, like really th- inconvenient to him to, for him to realize there's ice cream in the freezer. He'd be asking for it all the time. Yes. Jack, life, right? life would be <laughs> bad for him. And it would be bad for us. Why would it, it be bad? It benefits nobody. Exactly. It would be bad <laughs> no for us, one. obviously, because we have to fight him for it. But it would be bad for him because he he does he would just be denied the thing that he wants. <laughs> mm. And he would not want that. So rather, it's better for him to just not realize there is that thing. Just like it's better for the kids in Dogtooth to not realize that there's a whole world out there that includes things like Rocky and Jaws. Right? <laughs> Am I right? Yeah. Uh, do you guys see why I included movies with with strong parental characters in them? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, um, no I, I think there is like a lot to consider at at this age because you're just like trying to not only uh, create some kind of guidelines for how a child is supposed to act and negotiate and bargain and whether to hold off at that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think we 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 had the intention. We have the intention of being uh, a a family unit in which we talk about why the boundaries are the way they are, why we want him to behave in a certain way, why you know why we make these rules. But also, like, we need him to comply sometimes. Yeah. We just do, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a tricky tricky line to walk. Yes, um, <laughs> because just to reiterate, he he it, his brain isn't fully formed, right? Yeah. And, that's why paternalism is a thing. It's like all amygdala right now. It's <laughs> because we recognize that at a certain age, it's not always your brain's fully formed at 18. That's just some arbitrary cutoff. But like at an age prior to 18, somewhere in that range, your your brain's not fully developed, so you're not able to reason well. And you're not able to reason in ways which allow you to overcome the emotional impulses, which could harm mm. you. And so, you know, part of parenting is putting up guardrails to ensure that the kid, you know, doesn't do worse for themselves. But another aspect of parenting, as you mentioned, Jack, is training them to experience what it's like to have to encounter rules and to do something that violates a rule. And then now they have to accept the consequences of that, right? They have to feel guilt. They have to learn how to accept that and learn how to apologize and just live with that, right? Because that's like an aspect of being a human being is we're always going to mess up and we want our kids to have had that experience in a kind of safe environment with that's very low stakes so that when they inevitably do that later on in life, they don't turn into a raging lunatic who <laughs> refuse, like Donald Trump or something, who refuses to admit when he's wrong. 
Um, yeah. You know, and and so there's this kind of socialization process that's happening as well. And again, I think what's so interesting about the film, just to tie it back, is is that all of that is in the film. It's just been taken to such an extreme right. and applied in ways which are unhelpful that you see the absurdity of it. But I think Lanthimos, I think, would agree that it's not to say that all this stuff that parents do is bad. It's just sort of, you know, when you see it in this light, you do see how ridiculous some of it is. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about like the scene where I was thinking about how like they've gotten to a point because these kids are like probably in their 20s where they've had yeah. to raise the stakes so many times. They've had <laughs> yeah. to fight like this is probably the start of that small. Right. And now they're at a place where they're like, your brother was murdered by the cat. <laughs> you know, your exiled brother was murdered by the cat. Well, I'm going to have twins and a dog, you know, and, and, and like the father <laughs> almost like sounds bored to be delivering the news. Like your father was dead yeah. killed by the cat. <laughs> you know, like they're having these phone calls where they're like, all right, like the brother thing, it's not working that much anymore that's not a good motivator for them you know so now forget the brother new thing now i'm having babies you know that's going to motivate them to be good that's going to scare them to stay in the compound this is gonna and you know i come to i do come sometimes feel like that with you know as our kid gets smarter i'm like uh oh like that thing's not working anymore i'm gonna have to swerve switch tactics and now we're doing this thing and and if you were to just kind you know the difference is that for most parents we sort of let go as they get as they get older and and meet other kids and have other influences but if you just continued yeah. gripping harder and kept taking everything to its logical consequence of whatever you know <laughs> fallacy you created and then you just keep taking the next step and the next step this is where you'd end up yeah you end up i mean ultimately all coercive norms are backed by some threat of sanction what is the threat of sanction ultimately it's physical punishment mm-hmm Ultimately, I mean, they're even psych- psychological, most psychological threats are grounded in some kind of physical, like we're going to deprive you of food, we're going to hurt you, and so on. You know, shame maybe is an additional one, but but the really powerful ones end up being physical ones. But at the end of the day, you can only escalate so much, right? The The mm. son is probably stronger than his father. Yep. And the three of them together are stronger than the father. So in a way, like the the, the kids just haven't realized that taken to the logical extreme, they could rebel and win. But what keeps them in line is the kind of the, the the illusion that they are actually weak and ignorant and powerless. And I think that's the aspect of the film that resonates with the fascist reading, because that's, I think, what people who think about fascist states identify as some of the central features. You know, they're a kind of docile populace kept in place. I think this was even ahead of its time with Greece going through some of that uh, in the next few years after this came out. Yeah, 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 exactly. I wasn't actually sure if it was responding to anything politically or not, but I I definitely think the parallels are there. And and again, but to do this, the, the state in a way recognizes that although it has a monopoly on coercive force, you know, the, the state is outnumbered by the people, I mean, inevitably. So, you know, there's always a threat of revolution. And so the state, there's different ways to manage this. And in a fascist state, you manage it by um, by this kind of diffuse common threat um, with, you know, either with the people threatening to rat out each other to like the police state or uh, some kind of 
people kept in line by generalized ignorance or a kind of um, um, a sort of absurd d- devotion to a to a kind of strong man that they see as a charismatic leader who has a kind of power that's above the law as they see fit, right? So they've kind of mm-hmm. invested this strong man with the power and they recognize that like, well, yeah, he might be a bad guy, but if he were to go, then everything would be worse. So it's better to have this strong man in place. Um, the children don't know what morals are. And I think it's it's key that like they can't question their dad and they can't rebel because they're comfortable, but they don't know they don't know why to rebel and they, and because they don't know why to rebel, they don't even know why their dad's doing this. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I guess on like a surface level, like stage one interpretation, he likes the power. I mean, it, I think that that goes to fascism reading. Um, yeah. Even when you see him at work, like in the factory, uh, it's like he lies about uh, the mom's illness. Mm-hmm. Um and you know compulsive liar and just likes to spin narratives constantly and and you can sort of see a life outside of uh the film where he is not he he never knows who he is and what his life is because it's it's never what it actually uh becomes and and wants things to be different without changes there is this kind of thing which i'm sure we've all heard this where we there's the trope of the police officer who was the who's the person who was bullied and now they just mm. feel like, okay, now I'm got power. I'm going to act out on all these people who I have authority over. Um, and you might think something similar for parents, right? So parents who've been uh, maybe abused by their parents then grow up to be a, maybe abusive parents themselves. And potentially that's because they're acting out this kind of latent aggression against their own parents now on their children. And it's a kind of this power trip where you you now have this power all of a sudden that you didn't have. And it's, it's seductive. But I think what's what's nice about this movie is that it's it's not like a depiction of an abusive family in the in the sense that in the like traditional sense. I mean I think there's there's real love there. I think I mean there's scenes of like the adult, like when the son gets in bed with them and sleeps mm-hmm. with them in the middle of the night, right? He has, like, a nightmare or thinks he sees a cat or something. Um, you know, he does... The, the father animal. <laughs> the <laughs> father does, you know, at times, you know, use some corporal punishment. But I feel like whatever their motivations are, are not just, like, this desire to control, to control just for the sake of having power. I think there's, like, there's something that's fear-based for them, too. I mean, the mom is not leaving the house. That's right. True. He yeah. leaves the house. He just goes, seems to go to the factory and come back. But like, you know, we all have this impulse to want to control or to want to, you know, protect our children from this scary outside world and all the dangers and all the influence of things that upset us. Um, you know, it's for us, like we showed our kid Tenet from Jump. So we're not really worried about movies and Hollywood being the thing that corrupts them. But there's lots of things I want to keep my keep away from my son as long as possible. Um, and I, and I think like, it's just, it got twisted. Um, but I feel like there's something that there's a, there's a love motivation in there too. And I do wonder if like maybe something traumatic happened to them and they were like, we can never let our kids out here. It's horrible out there. That's interesting. Hi, it's Laura from the future, older and wiser. I wanted to pop in here because, um, 
truly seconds after we finished this recording, I realized that, of course, I think this family is abusive. I said that they were not an abusive family in traditional sense um, because there was not a lot of, although some physical abuse, and that's not actually how I feel. Um, This family is definitely abusive, and abuse comes in all kinds of shapes and forms and degrees. And I've been thinking about this a lot about this a lot late because I had a conversation with a friend who had a family. Uh, she grew up in a, a in a with a history of family abuse, and she felt like culture has turned the word abusive into something that describes the absolute worst, most extreme scenario, and that can be harmful because it prevents people who've experienced abusive uh, experienced abuse. And other forms to stop short of saying the word, and that gets in the way of their ability to process and heal and move forward. Um, And I think I fell into that trap. But I want to leave it in. Didn't tell Justin to cut it because I said what I said, and I can admit when I'm wrong. And also, I think it's really interesting that I'm so motivated to find good intentions and love, even twisted love in these parent characters. And uh, I may have some soul searching to do there in terms of how much I identified with the parents or how quickly I twisted myself into knots to find good in their motivations. But that's something else that I want to just correct, too, is that um, motivations don't negate abuse and they don't negate the experience of the person who's been on the receiving end of that abuse. It doesn't really matter what their motivations were. Um, My friend said something really beautiful to me that I'm just going to, like, quote Exactly as she said it, because she said it better than I ever could. But she said, the ways in which you are marked by pain are the ways that you are marked by pain. You get to define them as you seem fit, and others have to live with those definitions, even if they disagree with them. Anyway, sorry to get heavy, but that's my final thought. I've been ruminating on this a lot, so thanks for adding it in, Jess. I mean, I think that the protection of innocence reading is is there maybe but but it's it's pushed you can push back on it a little bit when you when you see how quickly the father when he dismisses christina the person he brings in he brings sex, his daughter he just in. immediately yeah. is like both daughters are now up for grabs he could choose whichever one she wants. and yeah. there's no like attempt to protect either of their innocence in that you know in that regard he, they're true. just basically used as sex objects for the son in that moment mm-hmm. right and so I do wonder whether how much of it is a kind of protection of innocence. Because you might think one of the things you want to protect your kid's innocence of is like sex and in particular young women. Yep. Of, it's, oh, you know, and another thing is violence, but it doesn't seem like they're kind of sheltering them from violence either because they're training them to be attack dogs and kill cats. And <laughs> that's right. True. And he uses the that's shears true. on the cat, the, the garden um, scissors. Yeah. yeah. But maybe they're trying to protect him from other things. Like, like there are certain religious, because like, this is this film. You could also think of it as like, they're a cult, yes, right? Like a religious sure. cult. And yeah. there are yes, certain things where like, that. yeah, really religious cults. They often have sort of strange, arbitrary things. Like it's not necessarily sex or violence, but it's something like, corruption by of of like their their moral values or something mm. like that. Mm. And so maybe what they're trying to do is like protect them from what they see as corrupting values that come in from the outside. Whatever those might be, we're not quite sure what they are, but you know, some religions that are kind of closed off have that view. So I I I think that could be possible. And it's a cult like behavior that isn't necessarily teaching them one straightforward message. But it's altering their worldview in many different ways. Mm-hmm. That it's it's like it's attracting cult like behavior as a loving parent. 
and it's like they're disguised as a as a cult leader. Yeah. Um, one of our frequent guests, Vinny Mancuso, who's a writer for Collider, he's been on for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Under the Silver Lake. He, when he came on for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, brought on this idea that every film, to varying degrees, is about the loss of innocence, and I haven't stopped thinking about that for like a year. <laughs> that you can apply the loss of innocence theme to anything and it kind of barely or exactly fits in um and including this that yeah i think justin was onto something that like maybe you can read into the backstory with not necessarily things that are said but reading in between things that aren't said with the parents and maybe they just are passing down this this way to com- to completely erase everything that we know about parenting and doing so in an absurd way, but a way that sort of makes sense. <laughs> Not to us, but to, to them. I mean, it's also then we're thinking about what the moment of lost innocence is. I think there are a couple of candidates. So mm. the I think it's the eldest. My view is it's the eldest who loses her innocence. But what's the moment? She lost the dog tooth. Yeah, I think that's certainly... She definitely loses the dog tooth. So, but I think there's a couple. So before she even gets there, so so here's a couple candidates. So one, I'll go backwards from the dog tooth. So which I believe. So I would say there's the dog tooth. Then there's watching the movies, right? So that's a potential corrupting outside force. She watches Rocky and Jaws, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but before that, she engages in sex with uh, Christina. But before, so there's a potential loss of innocence there, right? But before that, she engages in a kind of transfer of, you know, bargaining, right? Because this is a society, so to speak. This family is a society where there doesn't, there's not really a kind of barter system, right? There's not, it's like a family, right? Everyone just shares stuff. And so nobody's sitting around like exchanging goods and services, but she does have this exchange of goods and services with Christina. So you might think that's the initial corrupting thing is, is like this capitalism that comes in from the outside. And now she's like, in, now she's in a kind of exchange economy and that, so you might think that's the initial corruption. Anyway, I don't know. I'm curious. Mm-hmm. You guys I think maybe they, there do, are more. they do exchange. Cause she was, she has that exchange with Christina about like, the I, the sock, but she was talking about how she got socks from her sister for two erasers. Oh, okay. So, so they, they were it's a, very, it's a very closed system. I see, but I didn't But the same that. objects are kind of circling around between the siblings. So then maybe the first ex- the first <laughs> corrupting thing is the initial exchange when they start exchanging between themselves mm-hmm. because it's it as far as I can tell that's not sanctioned by the parents. The parents aren't like setting up some barter system for no, them. No, no, this is something yeah. They just kind they, of it's, it's evolved naturally. Because they've created such a like a competitive system though. It's it's like it's sort of the natural thing where like, you know, if something if the the boy, the son had the the toy plane, that leads the eldest to attack him with a knife. Well, that's right? yeah, but that's not a system of exchange. That's like <laughs> give me this thing, I will kill you. Yeah. Right? And think about yeah. an, uh, the other thing that they have which again is not a system of exchange is the um is 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 the sticker system right which mm-hmm. is just that's a purely top down we decide we mm-hmm. met out the it's a hierarchy it's a hierarchical right? system. yeah it's a yeah, totally that's... cool system that really great parents use <laughs> okay true i don't so... know anyone that uses. 
Um, it's yeah, very and, chill. You know, it's, <laughs> it's fun, goddammit. Um, yeah, it's something that you kind of appear is a hierarchy, but then you disguise. I mean, it's all about disguise, right? Like, it's disguised as, like, a fun character on the sticker that will then, if you, if you accumulate enough stickers, um, then you will get a reward. Like, you're expecting something out of the accumulation of stickers. And then the oldest, she's accumulating an identity. Mm. I guess if mm. you want to like bring that even further mm-hmm. with uh, calling herself Bruce. Um, that's right. That's right. That's yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a crazy idea to name yourself too, which well, I always find, I always found funny. Yeah. Um, they don't have names. No, yeah. you're totally right, Jack. So the, the, maybe that is the moment of lost innocence. I can't remember when that occurs, but, but mm. that's another moment of lost innocence because prior to that, the the kids don't have names, right? The the eldest, the oldest son, and the youngest, or whatever. That's what they're called, and it's mother and father. They're, they're nobody has a proper name. They they only have a they only have a title insofar as they're related to the family unit, mm-hmm. right? They don't have a name that can transcend right. the family, and so she chooses a name. And that's like a moment of rebellion to choose your own name, mm-hmm. right? It, now you are defined by in ways by your own choice that allow you to leave the family unit. Yeah. And that, you know, when you think about people who have left a community, some of them take on new names, take on new identities when they leave that community because it's helpful for them to define themselves not in relative to that community, but on their own yeah. terms. That's kind of what the dad is doing to his kids in this movie is he's by unmooring them from reality in all these different ways and anchoring them only to the family unit he makes them utterly dependent on it for their conceptual framework for their way of understanding everything in the Mm -hmm. world and so it takes an immense amount of willpower and temptation to break you out of that but what i think is so cool about the film and what's actually optimistic about it is that the film ends with the eldest escaping. And I think the, 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 you know, as we mentioned, the things that the dominoes that lead to her escape are all kind of happenstance events, but that they're the things that you, you could believe could have happened. You know, if they weren't going to happen, then they were going to happen eventually. They felt happenstance, but also inevitable. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is, something important about the film which is which suggests an anti-fascist message which is that look no matter how i'm going to quote princess leia no matter how hard you tighten your grip (laughs) more star systems will slip through your fingers and i think she's right in that regard that like the fascist tries to tighten their grip but inevitably to quote another film chaos reigns or to quote another film life finds a way (laughs) Oh my God. You're I was just roll. thinking of all my chaos <laughs> metaphors, but you know what I mean? Like chaos is, you can't control it. It makes sense that Jurassic Park is on your mind. Yes, mm-hmm. it's true. It does. Recency bias. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I, I hadn't, I had been thinking about like the, why they were so scared about the movies coming in or like what the threat of the, of her watching Rocky and Jaws was. And you're right, Justin, that it's not really sex or violence because they're exposed to that in their own family unit anyhow. But yeah, Jack, I really love you. I keep thinking about that idea of her naming herself as like the big moment, right? That she 
you know, there's, there's no narratives in this house besides their mm. own, right? I mean, they even watch films of themselves. Yeah, there's no yeah. stories, <laughs> right? They don't have books. They don't have anything where they can imagine world outside of their compound, but also imagine themselves as uh, in, in other characteristics, other people, right? That's what we do when we watch movies, when we watch, when we read books, is that we can sort of imagine being in different identities, being, you know, a brave hero or being some somebody else and, and trying that on for size. And yeah. they don't have any opportunities to do that, any sort of ways to help guide that. And, to see, you know, but I think it's like such a strong drive in us that any taste she gets yep. right she runs with it like we're drawn to narrative right that's the thing that that really hooks her um so yeah I, I hadn't really thought about that as being the thing that they're so desperate to keep out is that is any any uh story any story yeah. yeah any any way for them to get a foothold into personal identity i i, I don't know if lanthimos wanted us to read too much into the choosing Rocky and Jaws specifically to include in the film, if we were to read too much into them, they're both American cinema. Mm -hmm. They're both considered crowd-pleasing American cinema. And they're both considered, I guess, uh, very popular, right? And and I, I guess, like, it's, it's those things where it's like, of course, like, you would include uh, popular uh, art to expose to to these kids that they wouldn't know otherwise um i don't know it, it's it's like they are things that they wouldn't be exposed to yeah uh they're also just like very specific examples of of a of an out of an outside source that um they just i think that they couldn't find around them but yeah it's a very i think it's very specific choices for 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 films here's a here's a here's a read on why rocky and Jazz. so rocky because it's a it's one man against the world mm -hmm. right he mm -hmm. uh, he's got to overcome everything and eventually he's got to defeat communism right he's got to defeat fascism with his fighting <laughs> um and so I mean, he'd be communism exactly yeah. exactly yeah. Yeah, right. so so you know it's one man this who who can like triumph over a, that kind of adversity over a kind of um sort of fascist ad, ad opponent uh and then for jaws I think of the shark as this kind as like the chaos of nature, right? Like we try to control it, we try to keep it at bay, but inevitably it's out there and it's just that cat waiting. is out there. Yeah, the cat is out there, it's coming in. <laughs> and and I think similarly, you know, they try as they might the parents to keep it at bay. I think that the, the stuff is just gonna get there. And that's the thing as a parent, you know, parents all realize this at some point, or we all I guess know this at some point, you know, deep in our souls. But we have to like come to terms with it, which is the idea that our kids' innocence is going to get corrupted eventually. Mm. It's going to get corrupted on the playground. It's going to get corrupted in the internet chat room. It's going to get it's corrupted. It's not in necessarily the a question of if, but when. Exactly. But when. when. Yeah. 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 And when you, is and it going to happen? You really can't control when either. So. Exactly. Yeah. So you just know it's going to happen. You're not sure when. You're trying to stem the tide as long as possible, but you kind of recognize that you're fighting a, an uphill battle. And I think these parents have like taken that to an extreme where they think, right. okay, here, we'll we'll block everything out. And even they can't succeed. And I think that's the that's why this film actually has an optimistic ending, is yeah. even in the most extreme circumstances, life finds a way, so to speak. Right. And I think that is cool. Like I think that's why I don't feel like this film, you know, it's dark, sure, but it's I think it has an incredibly um optimistic and uplifting finale. 
in that I think, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen to her. Her life's going to be horrible, but she <laughs> is going to, def- she is going to but like she's escape. Gonna survive. She's like, going to escape this kind of fashion. Yeah. I mean, her, yeah, she's crafty. She's crafty. I think, yeah, that's what we've seen about her. Like she's, she's got this appetite for, for something, for, for seeing something new, for, for trying on some personalities, for having a go at it. And it's going to be awkward because she doesn't know, like if somebody talks about going to the sea, she's going to think they're talking about an armchair and like, <laughs> Can you imagine the first it's time she so sees tough. the sea, which is probably like five miles from her house? You know, she, what the fuck? Like, it's a giant <laughs> swimming pool. Like, I mean, this yeah. is like what it's like taking our son to play. So I'm like, look, that's a boat. And he's just like, whoa, you know, like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, what watching what is. kids find amazing is like, I mean, we went to Target and I thought it would be like, look at all the toys and the stuff you can buy. it, And our kid was just like, this floor is so shiny. It's like a dance floor. And then he was just jumping up and down. He's like, he's like, it make a good sound. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we're just staying in the lobby. <laughs> I know it's like kids we- are crazy, <laughs> but like they yeah. <laughs> totally fresh eyes, you know, yeah. and the floor yeah. is what grabbed him. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool. <laughs> Cause it's no. Um, oh, what was I going to say? It's this idea. Um, I, I think when they're more enlightened, you want to be privy to to what what they find interesting, and and even if they're going to be corrupted, you want to be the one that I, I guess dictates that corruption, even if it's very small. Um, You're right. The exact opposite of, but still on the same wavelength of I want to control everything of the dog tooth parent. So this is the opposite of the dog tooth mm-hmm. parent but still controlling is the person who's like, I want to be the one who introduces my kid to all these corrupting forces. And so we know those parents. Those are the parents that are like, yeah, come over to my house. You guys can drink, but it'll be at my house. Mm -hmm. I'll be controlling it. I'll be watching it. You'll be, you know, I'll be upstairs. You'll be in the basement, right? We all had, we knew kids, friends who had that kind of parent. And we'd always be over at their house having parties. But that's a different kind of I'm going to control when the kids get corrupted and how they get corrupted. I also think that impulse is an impulse to like, you know, I think part and parcel with kids getting corrupted, their innocence loss is also them becoming their own people and thus becoming to separate from you. Right. Like when right now. I've been saying this a lot because our kid's about to go to preschool. There is not a movie he has watched or a film or a book he has read that I have not also watched and read with him. Like all of his – he is definitely his own person. He's very different from me. That wasn't true two years ago. We were like one like organism basically. And now he's his own kid with his own, you know, personality. But he – but all his context is my context. And he's going to go to school and he's going to develop other interests. And I'm not going to have access to those. And he's going to have friends when he's a teenager and he's not going to want to tell me everything. And like I think the success of a – if you're a successful parent by most definitions, like your kid leaves and gets out of there and becomes their own person. But there's a pain to that. Yeah. And I, I have an impulse to want to keep him innocent. I have also have an impulse to want to keep him with me so that I have access to, like, what's going on in his mind and we can talk about it. I want to, like, I envision ourselves, like, me, like, having teenage conversations with my kid, but, like, on all likelihood, it's not going to happen. You want to sort of maintain the relationship almost as friends, right? right. You don't want to grow apart as... but that's also not healthy. I course. know that it's not healthy, but yet I want that because, like, I just, it seems, it feels painful for me for him to just be his own person entirely an example of this is that like i want my son to be into the things i'm into so star wars and christopher nolan films and 
you know, whatever. Yeah, you want to have but, a control of all the media that's coming exactly. in. Exactly. <laughs> but inevitably, he's going to be into his own thing, and that will mean we will grow apart. Yeah. Right? Because we'll, we won't have that kind of common ground to be able to share love over, and inevitably. I mean, some people, some parents and kids somehow manage to share interests, and I, I hope the best for us, but I think inevitably it won't be that way, and, and that I agree, that will be tough. That it's will be, be painful, right? Yeah. But like that's but that's healthy and successful too. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah. Like yeah. taking on this job and being like, ugh, like this it's the this stupidest <laughs> job. Honestly, <laughs> being a parent sucks. It's for dummies. <laughs> Can I ask you guys this? So, yes. okay, we've been talking about like parents and all that oh, stuff. Uh, did you guys have like a favorite? instance of insane parenting that they did from the movie i think thinking about the first time that really this movie and yorgos like made me see movies like differently um it was always that the idea of like punishing the children by making them bark like dogs like i've never (laughs) seen adults do that yeah in in film and it, it was just it was like this this idea that you're you're behaving like an animal because you're, you're, you know, you're roughhousing or, or whatever. Like, like what's the idea of, of a punishment because you broke a rule to a parent. It's, it's not this, like, usually it's like no phones, no electronics. And it's like, you take away the, uh, the idea to like be online and talk to friends. <laughs> but for them, it's like, you have to like, we have to bark at each other until <laughs> you understand what you did was wrong. Um, I love yeah. that. Yeah, that's Next. great. That's actually, a, that's also a wonderful scene for a couple of reasons. One is that the, it's a, it's a rack focus. So they he's just racking back and forth between the characters as they're barking, right? As the dad moves from one to the other, the focus tracks them. Um, and I, I was thinking about that as you were saying it, Jack, because I was thinking, Okay, I had read that he shot this film entirely with one fifty mil lens, so just the same lens the whole movie, and that's actually contributing to the stylistic patina and that why it all kind of looks so bland. If I'm not mistaken, I think he did as well on the favorite, but I could be wrong. Intr- really, that that huge wide angle lens, mm-hmm. um, the fisheye. Um, yeah, that oh, makes sense. yeah. There's that really cool cinematographer that China, yeah, same cinematographer as Marriage Story, which is pretty cool. Nice. Um, yeah. But fit, look, the wide-angle favorite lens <laughs> is striking. The 50mm yeah. lens is boring. Like, 50mm yeah. lens is, like, <laughs> an like incredibly boring yeah. lens. And everything looks the same. But the other thing I was thinking is there's very little camera movement. In, like, mm-hmm. I mean, there might be pans, but there's very little, like, pick up the camera and move it yeah, around. Yeah, so much so that when characters move around, sometimes their head gets, like, out of frame and stuff. Yeah, I like, think he's really just, like, locked the camera down. And yeah. And that's why the rack focusing is what made me think about it in the um in the dog sequences. That's really the only way he has when they're all lined up that way to sort of to highlight stuff. He can't move the camera. He gets to, he has to focus between them. Um, and that's, I guess, that's him being hemmed in by the minimalist stylistic choices that he's making. And... As a result, it it contributes to the kind of bland, uh, utilitarian feel of the of uh, you know of everything in the movie. And um, yeah, I, I really like that sequence a lot. It's the lifelessness of the camera yeah. that you're you're sort of like 
put into this headspace. And then, yeah, like the way that yours uses the cameras is really interesting. You're right. Like thinking about killing a sacred deer again, it's like, I always think about that camera and, and how it it's, it's really in a life of its own just to rack up the tension. Cause yeah. mm-hmm. it, like it, there's so many like pivots and, and like simple like pans that, it'll do sometimes where you're just, just like, like moving to the hospital sometimes yeah, right? yeah he has oh. yeah the hospital ones are the ones that got me the, like yeah hospital. they're over the I shoulder the yeah it's like a horror movie it's high though so yeah. it's like the shining is low oh my gosh yeah you get the low yeah. tracking shot but he puts it up higher than eye level and it's wide mm-hmm. angle it's it's so weird it's like a ghost that's following the characters that go down the hallway but mm-hmm. it's way too high yeah it's just like super creepy it has like a surveillance mm-hmm. photo like mm-hmm. surveillance video like it's at that angle. level yeah, yeah exactly mm-hmm. yeah. laura do you have a favorite parenting advice you would get from this movie i mean i've talked about the stickers enough but that was the moment where the like penny are there any me. that you've used uh aside from <laughs> yeah Definitely yeah did you get some sticker. new ideas <laughs> is basically what you <laughs> do you have anything that you wrote down to you threatening <laughs> to give birth to a sibling that one was yeah. my favorite yeah because i i feel like you do that sometimes justin we're like you're like hey uh, would you, you want a sibling to our son? And he goes, no. And I'm looking at Justin like, how is that up to him? What the hell? Like, <laughs> don't let him decide. But our kid does not want a sibling. He has been very clear on not wedding a sibling. So, uh, yeah, maybe we can use that in the future. Yeah. Like, just so you know, <laughs> if you're not good, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm giving birth pretty soon. Twins. They're both going to be in your room. Yeah, you have to share your room. <laughs> Do you notice that mommy's getting a little bigger? Well, that's because you said. Uh, <laughs> Remember when you said that thing? Yeah. That is so interesting because like you would commonly hear kids like, Mom, when do I get like a like a brother? Yeah, no, all of his little three-year-old friends are obsessed with kids, but obsessed with babies. But like our kid is a psychopath or something and he's just like gross. You know, he has my feeling about children. Yeah, well, there's a he. We talk basically talk his 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 feeling about babies is that they're like dumb and don't do anything. He's like he's like that baby just sit there. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, not like, to put you guys on the spot, but do you agree with him? Like, are you guys like, <laughs> done or yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no more children. No, I love yeah. babies, but he's our he's gonna yeah. be our one and yeah. only. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my favorite parenting moment is the translation of the Frank Sinatra. See, yeah. I just think that's so funny. I'll re- let me read you the what he said. I wrote it down. So here's the translation according to the dad. Dad loves us. Mom loves us. Do we love them? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. I love my brothers and sisters because they love me as well. And I love that he's like waiting between to like hear the yeah. next lyric. The spring is flooding my house. The spring is flooding my little heart. My parents are proud of me because I'm doing just fine. I'm doing just fine, but I will always try harder. My house, you are beautiful, and I love you, and I will never, ever leave you. (laughs) It's like someone is trying to, like, write (laughs) text-to-speech. Like, they're trying to, like, speak a text into their phone, and it's like, what the hell is that? Yeah, it's like a very shitty nursery rhyme. Um, I think it's one of those ideas, or it's, like, it's something that's obvious, um, but no, that I think that's a perfect example of like Yorgos has such like a keen sense of humor that it works for any satire that you'd like to insert into it. Um, but it's still Yorgos. He doesn't sacrifice himself for making a statement. Um, and the lobster is the same. Well, tell me, tell me. So 
as a fan of Yorgos, I mean, two-part question. What's your favorite, but then also where would you recommend people start? So mm. let's we're assuming people ah. have seen Dogtooth, but like if they, what's like, let me put it this way. Where, where should people start with Yorgos? But I'm also curious about your favorite. Yeah, uh, I think with a lot of filmmakers that I really that I really dig and I feel like I understand what they're what they're going for. Right. Because I I think with a lot of films in general, it's it's hard for me to choose favorites. Like I hate answering uh, or not hate, but I, I had have a very difficult time choosing like a favorite film. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with like choosing a favorite film from from filmmakers. But like sometimes it's it's fun to do just on downtime to see like where you're at with the filmmaker. Yeah. Well, let me put it like those things can change. Uh, since I did see yeah. the lobster first, mm. I would say that lobster is my favorite and that's where I'll usually come back to where it's like, well, what, what sold me? And then if that sold me, then I guess like that's still, um, it has all the pieces that I, I love what they're doing. And, uh, yeah. And if someone has seen this, I, I would also say, Maybe like just go, I would say go in order because I think with someone like Yorgos who's very selective and has only made less than 10 movies, you know, it's, I would say going in order of release. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that would be an easy go. I mean, I would give actually, that's a good, a good strategy, but maybe start with Dog Tooth because as you mentioned, mm-hmm. Kaneta maybe isn't, isn't as. Oh, yeah, yeah. I meant like uh, Dog Tooth and then like going to and Alps then, and then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I also think though that, uh, there's something to be said for starting with the favorite, starting with the most recent one, because mm. I actually think in some ways the favorite is his most success accessible film. Yes. And it's also the most overtly f- funny. And I think, mm. so we watched it in the, at the Brattle in this, like, it was part of Boston <laughs> Film Festival and I had a terrible cold and I felt absolutely horrible, but it was hilarious. We were having such a good time in the theater. Mm-hmm. The audience was so super involved and and was was engaged with the film. And I feel like it was a real crowd pleaser in a way that yes. I don't that like surprise people. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. And we cuz like we've also watched The Killing of a Sacred Deer with an audience and that is not a crowd pleaser. No. <laughs> um <laughs> I think if there's any, I think it's fascinating that it's like those two are a year apart. Right. And it's like the difference with the reception, uh, Yorgos, I believe, wrote Sacred Deer. Yeah. Yet the script for for the favorite was bouncing around for a long time. And he just happened to direct a script that Mm. was, that was just like out there in Hollywood. Was that his Um, first time doing that? Yeah, I think so. I see. I believe. Yes. Yes. Uh, and yeah, no, and I think that that's sort of like. So then he just sort of your ghosted up. He's exactly. like, we need yes. how many dance scenes are there? <laughs> how many ducks do we shoot? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. that's interesting. Um, that that makes sense now yeah, that I. Yeah, I yeah. think Sacred Deer no, is my favorite. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 After just saying it's not a crowd pleaser. It's not a crowd pleaser. I would not have people start there. Definitely not. Like, I wouldn't be like, hey, are you person off the street? Like, check out Sacred Deer. Then you can decide if you like this filmmaker. Because I think you I think you're right, Jess, that the favorite is a is an easier access point. The lobster maybe is an easier access point. Mm -hmm. But I I don't know. I don't know what it is about Sacred Deer. I love that movie. You know, now that I'm with you, Laura, (laughs) Sacred Deer is so it's so funny. 
like there's I, I think it's it's just like I saw it like in the in I mean with all of Yorgos movies like I said it just I feel like I, I saw them in in fortunately like very well-timed circumstances mm-hmm. um yeah, let's let's end on that note. So so Jack is the host of Exiting Through the 2010s and and you should check out that podcast because you have a fantastic lineup of guests. You guys cover excellent movies and they're all recent releases, so m- most people will have seen lots of them. And I mean Jack, do you have a recommendation of a, maybe a, an episode for people to start with if they're just coming to 2010s for the first time? we we have an ongoing too long list of people that we've always liked to have and we'd like to have back and someone who's who is on both lists of returning and wish list guests was Bill Gobiri. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the the one of my favorite people and one of my favorite writers and I, absurd that like we can call him like a friend mm-hmm. He's so uh, a few years ago uh, I, and I should also say that everyone in our pod chooses what to talk about that because you can bring us like like five to ten films from the 10-year period it kind of like means something to us that it's like you brought these for a reason and um and it's sort of like defined a point in your life when you saw them and uh and why that stood out and boga brought us tree of life and you know the discussion that followed of the tree of life was like pretty it was pretty every we kind of did everything and a movie about so much and that meant so much to a lot of people's careers um yeah i i would i would say the tree of life with bilga just excellent and yeah he is a huge Malik fan, yeah. so uh, I'm not surprised that he <laughs> right. he went for Tree of Life. No. Um, and Jack, tell us where, if we want to listen, where can they find the pod and, and can they follow you on Twitter and, and, and all that? Yeah, uh, we're just about everywhere um, where podcasts can be found. And I'm on Twitter, Jack A. Draper. Um, yeah. What's the podcast Twitter handle? Uh, ETT pod. ETT yeah. pod. Thank you for... <laughs> Got it. At ETT pod and at Jack Draper on Twitter. Yeah. Jack, thank you so much for being here. Yeah. Thank you guys. You guys are like the cool aunt uncle who are into movies. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know. I hope that's, I hope that's old. We're old. We're old. Yeah. We were just talking to some, some other people who we're, we feel very old. I can't believe we did this entire podcast. We didn't talk about the dance scene. Oh, okay. We're trying to uh, wrap up, Laura. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Laura yeah, just yeah. is like every uh, Lanthimos film has a dance scene, and Laura was like, yeah. this is my favorite part of Lanthimos, <laughs> is the dance numbers. I'm just saying those mm. lunges. She's she's going for it. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, she's great. Yeah, she's fantastic. I mean, I love how committed they all are. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, and it's, it's, it's some way to express themselves when it's just like, wh- how, what are they going to do to like get something out <laughs> that they just can't like That's right, like, that's yeah. right. 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 They don't, they can't start a podcast, so. <laughs> yeah, and when they do art, yeah. it's just to paint their father. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to wrap this up, but now you're going to get us going on the art history of Dogtooth. Nope, I'm all done. Um, I'm all done. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs> thank you, Jack, for coming on, and we'll have to have you back again soon, and we'll look forward to, we're going to pl- go ahead and plug that we're going to be on Exiting Through the 2010s talking about a separation which may be 
It's not, but it's very close to my favorite film of that decade. Um, and so I'm very excited to talk about that with you, Jack. Awesome. And uh, we are at CowsPod on Twitter. You can find us on the web at cowspod.wordpress.com. And if you want to buy a shirt with two cows on it, you can go to cowspod.threadless.com. And next up, we have, in two weeks, we'll be talking to an old friend of mine, Brian Martinez, about the film Fight Club. So we'll see you then. Thank you.